0: A few years ago, the comedian Hannah Gadsby is hanging around after a show when a guy comes up to her. And he says, Why are you taking antidepressants? You're an artist. You need to feel your feelings. You need to feel your pain. Or you'll never make great art. And then he says, If Vincent Van Gogh had been medicated, he never would have painted his sunflowers. And, you know, life would suck for us. Now, besides being an incredible diss of the show he just saw, this is one of the most deeply rooted beliefs about how art is made. That you have to suffer for your art, or it's not going to be interesting. It's not going to be real. If you're happy and you know it, you're not an artist. But Hannah Gadsby is not just a very funny person who's Netflix special a couple years ago was one of the most talked about shows of the summer. She also has an art history degree, which is maybe why she became a comedian. So she tells him, actually, Vincent van Gogh was medicated. He painted portraits of the psychiatrists who were medicating him. And in fact, a medication that van Gogh took for epilepsy can make the color yellow appear more vivid. In other words, she says, we may well have Van Gogh sunflowers precisely because Van Gogh medicated. Then she asks him, do you really think artists should suffer? That this is the burden of creativity, just so you can enjoy some sunflowers? And he says, no need to be so sensitive. This is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, the roots of a romantic but dangerous myth. The myth of the starving artist, of suffering for creativity, and why it's proven so persistent for so long. I'm Tim Gearing. Okay, so to figure out how we got here to the point where cutting off your ear is the hallmark of great artists, we have to go back to 1822, when a guy named Henri Morgere is born in Paris. Morgere is the son of a janitor and drops out of school at 15 and works some menial jobs until he turns to the most menial job of all, Writing. He's desperately poor, writing poetry in a Prisian garret among the wine bars and artist studios. He's so poor, in fact, and so are his friends, that they call themselves the water drinkers because they can't even afford wine. Sound familiar? He is the living stereotype of the bohemian artist, right? Only the stereotype hasn't been invented yet. Here's what happens next. So Mergère starts writing fiction, spelling his name Henry with a Y and Merger with an umlaut to sound, you know, more exotic. And in 1845, when he's 23 years old, he comes out with a story about the life he knows, the starving artists and writers and musicians and their various passions in the Latin Quarter of Paris the intellectual heart of the city. And then he comes out with 18 more stories pretty much like that. Now he calls these people the Bohemians. And eventually, he turns their stories into a hit play called La Vie des Bohèmes. If that sounds familiar, maybe it's because you know the opera based on it, La Bohème, by Puccini. Which came out more than 50 years later in 1896. Or the musical Rent, which was based on the opera. Or Moulin Rouge, for that matter, the movie about starving artists played by actors making millions of dollars. But in 1849, when Mergere came out with his play, nobody really knew what a bohemian was. He invented it. If anything, people thought it meant the Roma. The gypsies, as people have pejoratively called them. And Mergere, in kind of a racist way, was careful to say he was definitely not those people, synonymous, in his words, with robbers and assassins and dancing bears. Bohemians were more, in his mind, like artistic vagabonds, paint-splattered lilies of the field. And suddenly, after the success of his play, everyone wanted to be one. 2 years after Mergere comes out with his bohemian stuff, Van Gogh comes along. And by the time he's 8 years old, Mergere is dead at age 38. But Van Gogh definitely reads Merger. His bohemian stories had come out in a popular book too. And by then, other writers and artists had already begun to adopt the bohemian persona. And now here's Van Gogh, the late bloomer, right? born to fairly wealthy parents, who spends a long time trying to find his purpose in life. He works as an art dealer, but hates it. Becomes a missionary, but hates it. He moves back in with his parents and probably hates it. And finally, when he's 28, in 1881, he decides to try painting. And that's when things really start to fall apart. He falls in love with his cousin. He starts living with a prostitute. He tries to start an artist colony in his house. But only Paul Gauguin shows up, and he's kind of a jerk. And then, of course, he cuts off his ear and delivers it to a prostitute. And eventually, when he's just 37 years old, he kills himself, having supposedly just sold one painting in his lifetime. He is, in other words, the ultimate bohemian. And when his art really starts to sell after his death, and he becomes maybe the best-known artist in the world, that just seems to prove it. The best artists are the starving artists. Except that's not the whole story. Back up to Mergère again. In his stories of the Bohemians, the main characters are a painter, a musician, a philosopher, and a poet. And they're all pretty unsuccessful and spend a lot of time sitting around yearning for romance and money. But they're also all very young. They're still trying to find their way. In fact, Mergère describes several different kinds of bohemians. One, there's the amateur bohemian who's just kind of slumming it. He could do better, but chooses to live in Bohemia for the fun of it. And eventually, when he's had his fill, he'll return to the good life among the bourgeoisie. Then, two, there's the official bohemians, who are in it to win it. Ambitious, committed to art, and eventually will be successful and join the bourgeoisie. So you see, Merger didn't think the starving artist, the suffering genius, was actually the pinnacle of art making. He thought it was a first step. The initial stage of artistic life, when you're young and footloose. And eventually, if you're any good at art, you move on up. But Merger also described a third category of bohemians. He called the unknown dreamers. The artists who aren't seeking fame and fortune and don't expect to find it. They're too cool to play the game. And which of all the categories of bohemian is maybe the one that our modern culture has latched onto the most? Merger is dismissive of these unknown dreamers. He calls their way of life a blind alley. And says their avoidance of fame works against them. They're poor, he says, and they'll die poor, and no one will be the wiser. So somehow, the tortured genius, in a willful misreading of Mergere, becomes the template for great artists, right? And then, somehow we look back and revise history to make all the great artists conform to the stereotype. Like Michelangelo, maybe the original starving artist during the Renaissance, who supposedly suffered on his back for God, so we mortals might have the Sistine Chapel. And in fact, Michelangelo himself started these rumors as an old man going around complaining about his poverty, right? But a few years ago, a professor at the Florence, Italy branch of Syracuse University, a guy named Rob Hatfield, started poking around in Michelangelo's 500-year-old bank accounts, which apparently you can do in Rome. And he discovers that far from being a starving artist, Michelangelo was actually incredibly rich. In fact, when he died, he was worth more than many princes or dukes of his day. He liked to keep his money in this wooden box by his bed. And there was almost as much cash in there when he died as a duchess in Michelangelo's day paid to buy the Pitti Palace, now an enormous museum in Florence. But that's not the story we like to hear now. As Hatfield put it, we like our artists to be poor and suffering we don't like them to be filthy rich. So here's what happens with Vincent van Gogh. After he dies in 1890, his beloved brother Theo, who had supported Vincent's art career with his generous monthly allowance, he dies too, out of distress, the following year. And in 1914, his brother's widow puts out this three-volume set of their letters in which Vincent has a lot to say about the suffering expected of artists. How they must persist with as few pretensions as a peasant if they want to be taken seriously. And this is where the myth-making really begins to happen. In 1934, a popular novel based on those letters comes out called Lust for Life, in which Van Gogh creates his sunflowers and other masterpieces while starving in his garret, and eventually becomes a movie starring Kirk Douglas in a straw hat. A year later, in 1935, the Museum of Modern Art in New York puts on a massive show of Van Gogh's art, 125 pieces, and it, too, focuses heavily on his letters. The first 25 pages of the show's catalog from 1935 Are all quotes from his letters including a section called La Vie Bohème how he's working feverishly like a steam engine how he's risking his life for his art and lost his health and his reason in the bargain But here's the truth Van Gogh was mentally ill and we should know now that there's nothing romantic about it any more than Chopin coughing up blood onto the ivory keys of a piano. He needed help. And by all accounts, he got what help he could. But Van Gogh was also, as Henri Merger might say, moving out of his bohemian phase when he died. He was actually on the verge of making it. A couple years ago, a curator named Martin Bailey found yet another letter this time to Van Gogh from his brother Theo. And this letter, Bailey says, should overturn the myth that Van Gogh was ignored in his lifetime. Four months before he died, Van Gogh had gotten his work into a prestigious show in Paris. In fact, he'd gotten 10 paintings into the show. And when Theo goes to see it, he notices the president of France admiring them. That one painting Van Gogh supposedly sold, that was in the last year of his life. And had he lived, he almost certainly would have sold many more, and very quickly. Critics were beginning to praise his work, and shows were accepting it. Within ten years of his death, his work was in museums and dealer galleries throughout Europe, for no other reason than it was good. He was going to make it, despite himself. And considering he'd only been painting for eight years, and now the president of France is admiring his work, it's actually pretty good. Especially considering what a jerk he could be. His quarrels with critics and fellow artists and almost everyone but his brother. Despite his desire, perhaps, to keep toiling as a peasant in Bohemia. He might have wanted to stay an unknown dreamer, but he was just too good. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. Send us feedback, leave a review at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, and thank you.